Hello and welcome to Policy 360 Unplugged, the podcast where we talk about policy matters. And in this special episode, join me for an insightful conversation with Ian Jeffers, the outgoing Commissioner for Victims and Survivors. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for agreeing to take part in the podcast. Really appreciate it. And as you're leaving uh, as Victims and Survivors Commission, I was wondering if you could reflect on your tenure um, and talk about some of the accomplishments that, that the office has been able to achieve in that time. Yes, it's been a short period in office and it wasn't planned, uh, but these things rarely are in some cases. I come into the office and there hadn't been a commission for well over two years, plus there'd been COVID and so forth. Uh, and it, in my mind, the commission really lacked voice as a result of that. Uh, the team had tried their best, but in the absence of a commissioner, it's very hard to get doors opened and get your voice heard. Uh, so coming in was great opportunity to really renew and rebuild relationships at all levels, both with the victims and survivors groups, of which there are many, but also obviously with the public sector uh, and not just the funders, but government in particular and so forth. So that's probably our our biggest success in terms of, I think we've taken the profile of the commission. Uh, You know, if it was in a scale of one to 10, one when I arrived, I think we're probably at about seven or eight now. Uh, And the challenge will be to maintain that when I go, uh, because it will take, uh, the executive office quite a while to to replace uh, my post. Uh, I'd like to see that a lot quicker, but technically at the minute it needs a first and deputy first minister, which is a frustration. But uh, they've proven in the past, such as I think the Northern Ireland Children's Commission, that you can do it uh, and it can become a decision of the Secretary of State through to a point. So we'll see on that. But the other key things that we've achieved, I, th- I mean, in the next week or so before I do leave, we will be issuing things like advice paper on the bereaved, uh, which is long overdue, very important piece of work. Uh, we may continue to make progress in things like the Victims Payment Scheme. Uh, we were giving evidence in Parliament this week uh, on some improvements that we think could be done on that. Obviously, my time has really been uh, I was going to say tainted in some ways, but uh, it has been consumed by the what started off as the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Act. Uh, that was my second day in post that I got its uh, reading, its first reading uh, in the what was then the Queen's speech. Uh, since then, we've had three secretaries of state. We've got a king in place and we now have the Legacy Act. Uh, so are the legacy bills, or I should say. So we now have this in law. Obviously, it's uh, got legal challenges against it. It's not victim centric in any way. We have campaigned against uh, the whole thing. Uh, we were very vocal from day one, although as a commission, we did lean in and say we recognize that government will force this through. Uh, and you know, that didn't win me lots of friends. Uh, because there's many people think that the, the way to, to handle it was to not in any way engage with government. Uh, whereas with a conservative majority in the Commons, particularly, it was obvious. And in, indeed, you know, uh, as has been recorded before, you know, the, the ultimate 
desire in this bill was nothing to do really with the the victims and survivors in Northern Ireland. It was, uh, you know, it's been referred to as a veterans bill in some respects. Uh, so putting all that in the mix, we did lean in, and you know, I was pleased that we brought the forum along and we were able to meet with politicians on all sides, uh, in both the Lords and the Commons. And you know, we tabled or proposed six changes to the bill as it was going through. Uh, you know, four of those have you know trans have gone through in some ways, uh, thanks to predominantly uh, crossbench support in the Lords. And you know, it's it's good to see that you can influence uh, a law going through like that. We didn't get what we really wanted, uh, which was the removal of the immunity piece of that bill and so forth. But that, that to me is still a, a good achievement. And there's a long way to go now because we're now seeing the, the mechanics of the, the legacy bill wash out. What does it mean? The establishment of the ICRIR, the people within that, how do we build relations and so forth? So that's, again, another good achievement. And the final thing I'd sort of say is the forum themselves, incredible bunch of people with lived experience. When I come in, the, the average time on the forum had been about seven years because there hadn't been a replenishment program. Uh, great people, but very tired. You know, they're, they're, they've worked hard. They're all volunteers in the classic sense. And they're using their experience of uh, the, the troubles and the conflict to try and influence policy. Uh, we still have the, our original members. I'm delighted that most of them are, are going to stay with us for one more term. But we're also in the next week uh, announcing uh, about 12 new forum members. Uh, so we've been through a long process of uh, working with nearly 60 different people to select some forum members. So that'll be, uh, you know, sort of in some ways my legacy. Uh, I'll leave people that have lived experience of the troubles that are confident to be able to go out and influence, and actually they can open doors. Uh, I think victims and survivors, if we can give them the tools, can do an awful lot uh, to support themselves. And that's one of the key things uh, from my perspective. It's great that you have people with lived experience um, to be able to do that. And I suppose um, one of the other questions that I had was, you know, in terms of those policy barriers and challenges, what do you see um, impedes people from influencing, especially um, a lot of the um, victims and survivors groups then, you know, ones that while they may be part of the forum, others may not. I think you have to look at, you know, and, and this hasn't sat with me, it still doesn't sit with me well. We talk about the victim sector. Uh, and I think it's inevitable where you've got groups of people that have disadvantage of some sort or have, have faced adversity of some sort that you've sectors develop. Uh, and this is maybe, you know, looks at the community and voluntary sector as a whole, because we, we look at things in terms of elderly people or young people and so forth. And we group them together into convenient little buckets. And so we have the victims sector. There are, I believe, 48, 49 funded victims groups. Uh, they're funded through VSS, the Victim Survivor Service, uh, which in turn is funded through the executive office. They would support in the region of 15,000 victims per year. If you look at the actual statistics, that's probably only 10% of victims and survivors. So the majority of victims and survivors from the, the troubles are not engaged with any group. That could be seen as a positive or a negative or somewhere in between. 
Uh, you know, the positive might be that they don't need the support and they're comfortable enough. The negative might be they're not comfortable in getting involved with one of those groups. There are many, many groups. Uh, a lot of them I would call single identity groups. Uh, and by single identity, I don't just mean it from a religious point of view, but also uh, from their experience or their exposure to the, the trouble. So they might be all UDR veterans or all police or RUC veterans and so forth. Uh, or you do have groups that predominantly have come around from one particular atrocity. Uh, and you know that, that in itself, I think, creates lots of challenges because I don't think any sector that relies very much on public funding like that enjoys the, the economies of scale that could come if they all work together. And like any other uh, group, you know, I would really try to look for collaboration and partnerships and where we can combine things. I think people are reluctant at times to engage because you know, the victims and even the definition of victim, they're sensitive issues. Uh, you know, I find myself getting tongue-tied. Uh, you know, e even a simple thing, do I talk about the north of Ireland, northern Ireland, or whatever? Uh, and, you know, I can be in no way flippant about it, but I, I can make a joke about it and try and engage with people as a result of that. And I think as long as we're open and honest with each other. But... It is a sensitive area that we're dealing with, and I think people are reluctant to put their head up, uh, and they rely on a relatively small number of vocal victims and survivors to carry their message through. And they may support in the background or they may criticize in the background, but the, the reality is we have a relatively small number of people who do it. So there is an important role for groups, I think, to protect victims and survivors and all of that and to, to really go forward. I mean, we are sitting at the stage now, the Victims and Survivors Strategy that sits under TEO technically ran out in, I think, 2019. Uh, I think that the Executive Office should, before Christmas, publish the, uh, a strategy for consultation that, you know, and I would encourage individuals to, to really engage with that because I do believe there's a real important role for individuals uh, to make their voice heard because every circumstance, and it's one of the most, I suppose, rewarding parts of this role to have met so many victims and survivors who have faced such adversity but have then moved things forward. Now, some, don't get me wrong, a lot of people continue to struggle, uh, but they're fighters in the nicest possible sense. Uh, and I think if we can recognize that and support that and acknowledge people's suffering a little bit better, uh, we've got, you know, I think a, a government at the minute at a UK level that wants to sort of say that was in the past and I get over it. Uh, you can't get over something unless you address it. Uh, and we still haven't addressed it. So, I mean, you, you were talking there about um, Westminster government and the, the legacy bill. Um, and you've talked as well that you've tried to influence it. So how, how could we improve the fact that decisions are being made at Westminster about the past here? And you talked about there, you know, we haven't really addressed it. So what more can, can be done in terms of influencing that? And it's very hard when, when people haven't experienced it 
to come up with a solution. So it's been sort of made in isolation. What can we do to uh, I think if you look at anything that has worked in Northern Ireland, or indeed anything that's worked in a, in a post-conflict society to deliver you know, a sustainable peace process, it, it is about all parties, and I don't just mean political parties, but all parties being around the table and being party to the solutions. Uh, you know, from day one, I have said the legacy bill isn't the right solution because it's one part of a it, it's a it's a proposed solution from one political party, and you know, a great noise was made that all of the parties here were against the legacy uh, bill. They were all against it for slightly different reasons. Uh, you know, some might say it was letting the terrorists off because there was immunity. Others would say it's a state cover up, uh, and then some in the middle would say it's it's both. You know, so, you know, yes, everybody's against the bill, but for slightly different reasons. So we, sh we shouldn't sort of say, oh, isn't it wonderful? We're all united on this because we've got different things, but that's okay. That, and that, that's a good way to do it. I think to me, you know, it, you can look at things like Eames Bradley, Hasso Sullivan, Stormont House Agreement. Now, for a variety of reasons, none of them got over the, the, the finish line. But they were all negotiated round the table by the Irish government, the British government, the local parties, and in some case, a lot of community involuntary groups and individuals involved. And that, to me, is what the solution is about here. Uh, you, we can say yes, we're twenty-five years now since the Good Friday Agreement, uh, but yeah. What we've seen, even yesterday, with the sixth publication from the Independent Reporting Commission looking at paramilitary activity. It's quite clear paramilitary activity continues in in Northern Ireland on both the national, on the Republican and the Loyalist side. Uh, you know, so things have improved dramatically in the last twenty five years, no question about it. But we still haven't resolved things, and we haven't addressed all the legacies of the past. I mean, the, the legacy bill does attempt to do that in some respects. It looks at. Uh, I suppose, a retrieval of information for people. It's got memorialization in it. It's got oral history in it. Uh, I think if the government had taken a different approach and taken a more conciliatory approach and got people around the table, and you know, I would argue this doesn't need an act uh, or a passing of law to do this. This is about bringing communities and individuals and groups together uh, and having a discussion. One thing I am confident about in this little place is we all want a solution. And those that have lived here, and particularly those that have lived in the areas most impacted by the troubles, want a solution. Uh, but we've got to reflect on places like the Craigan or Lower East Belfast or Ardoyne. The deprivation in those areas is the same today as it was 25 years ago. So until we look at the broader issues, you know, we're, we're not going to get there. Uh, so there's a lot to be done, uh, but there is, the, you know, the, the will of the people, if you like, is there to do it. Uh, but that's why I think, you know, the Legacy Act puts us back because it, here's something that's imposed on us. Uh, and that's, you know, in some ways very old-fashioned <laughs> the way it's been done, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you're, you're talking about the areas of deprivation that are the same as they were um, 25 years ago. So th this question... I don't know if there's an answer to it. Um, is dealing with the past too difficult for policymakers? I don't, 
don't think so. I mean, it, yes, there's sensitive issues and we, we all come at it from different perspectives. Uh, you know, one thing I've seen is if you can look at this through the eyes of victims and survivors, so in many ways, those that have suffered the most, then you can find solutions. The forum is a brilliant example. The forum consists of people from very different experiences. They could be, you know, an ex-Greenfinch. They could be somebody that has had their father murdered by a loyalist paramilitary group or their uncle murdered by the provisional IRA. They can all sit around the table. They might disagree on some things, but they're civil to each other and they look for solutions. Now, if we can do that at a relatively you know, small level, I think it can be done everywhere. And, and don't get me wrong, there's brilliant examples. You only have to look around some of those areas to find community voluntary groups working day and daily, building projects, delivering projects that are supporting those communities and bringing them, you know, not just bringing them together and, you know, it's a reconciliation in some ways, but actually an appreciation of each other, of our own cultural identities, of our own heritage, and, you know, of the challenges that face communities. What are the challenges today? You know, it's cost of living we're worried about. It's putting a meal on the table. It's paying for heating. It's making sure the kids are getting well educated and that they have better opportunities than we had. Uh, but if we're worried about, you know, whether it's paramilitary activity or whether it is, you know, the fact that we haven't addressed the past, we're, we're not really moving forward enough yet. So there's, there's a lot still to be done. And there is, you know, I, one of the things that depressed me the most in lobbying around the Legacy Act uh, was a perception in particularly the Conservative government that it was time to draw a line under things. And there is very little lived experience in the Commons about Northern Ireland during the worst of the Troubles. Uh, the most of that experience sits in the Lords, where you've got. And if you look, you know, if you look at some of the worst times in the in the Troubles, we had a, a Labour government and we had uh, secretaries of state at the time who were very heavily engaged, and they continue to influence today. Uh, and one of the one of the old guard from a Labour Party perspective, uh, in the early days of my discussions around the, the Legacy Act, did you know he walked me out of Millbank one day, put his arm around my shoulder, and he says, "Ian, you got to remember, we're a damn breed. There's not many of us that actually care." And that was you know sort of an eye opener for me. Uh, but there are still people that care, and there's even you know, there are new people coming through. I think if you look at people like Hillary Benn, our Shadow Secretary of State. Uh, the approach he has taken. And, you know, maybe it is a bit of electioneering at this point in time uh, when two governments are, are sitting in, in the sort of the positions the Conservative and the Labour government are sitting in, uh, the Labour Party are sitting in. But, it, you know, I saw a different approach to Hillary Benn than I did from our current Secretary of State. Uh, and one of listening and one of actually caring and understanding that the solution is not a government-imposed solution. Uh, that there's wider things could be done uh, as civil society to really move Northern Ireland forward. The next step, uh, we need to look back 25 years from now and say, you know, have we built on the Good Friday Agreement even further? And, you know, park all the, the current noise about what we think of the Good Friday Agreement. It's a foundation. It's a moment in time. It's one piece of a very complicated jigsaw. So there's no point in saying, let's rip that up. It's delivered for 25 years. So let's build on it. 
uh, you know, picture might have to change in the jigsaw or we might have to find a few more of the straight edges, but we still can do that, you know. Yeah, um, you were talking there about, you know, the, the forum works and also the community and voluntary groups work in terms of bringing people around the table from different backgrounds and being open and honest, even if they do dis- disagree. How could, you know, now that you're, you're leaving office and there may be a gap, how could they then continue to sort of push that idea of collaboration with the UK government, but also with um, the government departments like TEU? Well, I mean, specifically from a victims and survivors point of view, there is a vibrant sector there. There's, you know, I mentioned the, the huge number of groups that are there. Uh, but even from a commission point of view, I mean, I'm fortunate there's a good staff team here with new forum members coming about. And, you know, I will leave sort of a, uh, the, the contacts and the stakeholder engagement plan. Uh, and I know those stakeholders are keen to listen to victims and survivors. So that doesn't take the commissioner to actually, you know, knock the door for that. So the, the staff team will be able to do that and make sure that victims and survivors' voices are heard. And we've got things like the ICRIR, the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. You know, it's going full pelt to get up and running for the beginning of May. Now, whether we like it or not, it's slowly becoming the only show in town for victims and survivors. They have got you know, a large budget. They're trying to build processes and procedures. And again, we have engaged from day one of their establishment to say, can you make this victim-centered? Can you look at every one of your policies and processes? And we will continue to do that. Uh, and the forum will play a very valuable role in that. Similarly, you know, before I go, we will have a meeting with the, the, the Chief Constable and Sir Declan Morgan to discuss uh, how are you going to communicate with, for example, the, well, somewhere between 1,014 uh, or 1,000 and 1,400 murders that sit unsolved in legacy branch within PSNI that come the beginning of May next year. Uh, the, you know, and this is a direct quote from a senior police officer. He said, we will close the lid in that box. Uh, the lid in that box can only be reopened if a family asks for it to be reopened. But will a family understand that? Will they want to reopen it? Uh, and there are things that we want to discuss. Uh, and I, I got to say, you know, people like John Boucher as chief constable understand legacy, I think, better than previous chief constable. Uh, the previous chief constable was very clear that he was here to police the future, the present and the future, not the past. I think because of Boucher's work with Operation Canova and uh, Operation Denton and the likes, he has a good understanding that by providing answers to the families impacted the most, you help people sort of get the answers, get the, the knowledge and the acknowledgement, and therefore help them in supporting their life going forward. So th- there's a lot to be done. And there is, I think, an openness from the people that can do it to listen to the voices. We just got to make sure we continually present those voices. Uh, so that that's in in my mind, you know, the commission can do that. The individual groups can do that. I challenge all of the groups to make sure that they're representing victims and survivors, regardless of race, color, or creed. Uh, and that that is something that we really need to look at. And it's something I will call for, regardless of whatever hat I'm wearing in the future. When we look at the strategy that groups are there to support uh, 
victims and survivors and to help them. Uh, this shouldn't necessarily be there for political means. My last question, Ian, you'll be pleased to know. Um, as you prepare to assume the role of CEO of Cooperation Ireland, how do you foresee reconciliation as a means of dealing with the past and moving forward? The interesting thing is that we've never as society really said, what does reconciliation look like? Uh, I've met some very interesting people over the last year and a half. Some have said reconciliation is impossible. Uh, others that say reconciliation is the only way forward. And, and the answer probably is somewhere in the middle because I think we've got to have those conversations and debates and we can always agree to disagree. Uh, there will be some that will not want to forgive and forget. That's understandable. Uh, but at the same time, I've also met nearly you know, everybody that wants to make sure that they leave this place better than <laughs> than they found it. Uh, so to me, reconciliation is a journey. It's a long journey. It's not something that we can deliver in, in a bill or an act. Uh, it takes everybody committed to it. But uh, I've learned over the years that the only way you can get people to actually commit to something is to give them a vision of what the future looks like. And I've never heard anybody, particularly from our political leaders, set out what this place could look like. So if I arrived here from planet X in five years and 10 years and 20 years time, what will I see or what would I like to see? And I think if we can get a united vision that we all agree to say, yeah, that's somewhere I'd like to live, that's somewhere I'd like to bring my kids up. And then we can challenge ourselves, well, how do we get there? And whether that is improvements in our social housing and then improvements in our education system and so forth, uh, that's what we're going to look at. At the minute, I think we all think, or not we all, but th there's this perception that reconciliation is like a light switch. You can turn it on, job done. And it's a, it's a long, long journey. And until we set that out, until we all understand that it's a journey, and then I think we'll take a real pride in doing it. Uh, but you know, we, we've got to step back and say, well, what are the missing pieces? Go back to that jigsaw. Uh, I, I would argue at the minute we've probably got the corners in place, but we haven't got the straight edges and we haven't turned everything up the right way yet. So that's that to me is reconciliation. When we get all of the pieces of the jigsaw up the right way, then we can start to put them together. But this is, it's like that uh, jigsaw of the baked beans. You know it's going to take you years to do, but you'll be very satisfied when it's done. That is great. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Policy 360 Unplugged. I hope you find the conversation insightful and be sure to subscribe and share it with others. Until next time, bye. Thank you.